0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for June 2021, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with the acclaimed New York Times bestselling biographer Scott Iman about his book, Cary Grant, a brilliant Disguise. Carrie was born Archibald Leach in 1904. He came to America as a teenaged acrobat to find fame and fortune. But Carrie was always haunted by his past. His father was an alcoholic. His mother was committed to an asylum when Archie was 11. Years old, He believed her to be dead until he was informed she was alive when he was 31 years old. Because of this experience, Grant would have difficulty forming close attachments throughout his life. He married five times, had numerous affairs. Despite an incredible degree of success, Cary Grant remained deeply conflicted about his past, his present, his basic identity, and even the public that worshipped him drawing on Grant's own papers, extensive archival research, and interviews with family and friends. This is the definitive portrait of a movie immortal. Author Scott Eiman has written numerous other books about people in the film industry, actors, actresses, and directors, and I began my interview with Scott by asking him why he decided to write this book about Cary Grant.
1: Cary Grant has had a number of books written about him, but uh, with very few exceptions. I thought he was very unfortunate in uh, the biographers that were drawn to him, which was part of why I wanted to write the book. I mean, there, there, are, there are definitive books that have been written about, about, about great stars, great directors, uh, but there's also been a lot of kind of bottom-feeding. And I don't, I I, I usually, when I'm circling a subject, I read the existing literature. And if uh, I find some uh, material that I don't think I can do better than, I back off. And if I find material that uh, without false modesty, I think I can do better than Then I proceed. It's, it's basically a, a, a quality judgment on my part as to, as to whether or not uh, uh, that subject has been exhausted in print form, and it often uh, it's not the case. <laughs>
0: With Cary Grant, everything that you see on screen—so handsome, so debonair—everything just looks like, you know, one of these actors who's not even acting. That—that's—that's that's who he is as the person you see on screen. And in the case of Cary Grant, it's pretty much the polar opposite. He, he worked all of his life to to be the Cary Grant, but he never felt that he himself was Cary Grant. Can you explain this? This is so strange. Well, it was a
1: performance. That's why I I used the title of Brilliant Disguise. His greatest performance was, Archie Leach's greatest performance was Cary Grant. (laughs) Uh, It was a a, a persona that he put together incrementally over three, four, five years. Uh, A piece here, a piece there, until he arrived at a point... Where the light was switched on, where you could see the difference on screen, where the audience could sense the difference on screen, or he could see the difference on screen. He was a very careful judge of his own work. He always saw his films, and he saw them with an audience, not necessarily in a screening room by himself, because that's a dead. Uh, uh, the ball doesn't come back over the net. Yeah. You can't gauge whether uh, a movie's working in a in a in a silent screening room. You can gauge it with you know five hundred people if a movie's working, so he was always careful to see his movies with an audience, Uh, and he could also gauge, he had a a special kind of objectivity, not about Archie Leach, but he had a very rare kind of objectivity about Cary Grant, and about what worked as Cary Grant. He did not have the same level of objectivity about what worked with Archie Leach, which is why he was married for five times. (laughs) Uh, and kind of uh, and had a great deal of anxiety in his life, whereas Cary Grant on screen had uh, was only anxious when there was a crop dusting plane pursuing him across the plains of of Dakota, other than that, other than that he he, he was pretty sanguine about things, you know but, but Archie leach who was who was uh, coexisting uh, in, the, uh, in the, with the facade of Cary Grant, had a great deal of anxiety and a great deal of worry because he had a truly atrocious childhood. The only performer I can think of who might have had a worse childhood would be Charlie Chaplin, uh, who, of course, became uh, Grant's model in terms of producing his own films and owning your own films to, to, to have a patrimony to pass on, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and also, in that sense, that the, the tramp is... Chaplin's tramp is an aspect of Charlie Chaplin, but it's by no means the totality of Charlie Chaplin and Cary Grant is an aspect of what Archie Leach would like to have been you know that was what he aspired to be Cary Grant's an aspirational figure for the audience and for the man playing him Mm. Uh, but it was by no means there was by no means a one-to-one correspondence between between Chaplin and the Tramp or between Archie Leach and Cary Grant
0: yeah tell us more about Cary Grant's uh, early background boy it certainly was troubled wasn't it
1: well yeah go wrong, it did go wrong. Uh, His his father was an alcoholic pants presser. Uh, His mother was mentally compromised, I guess would be the word. Uh, His father institutionalized his mother when when Archie was uh, 11 years old. Uh, He thought she was dead. Uh, He didn't find out she was alive until he was already at Paramount Pictures as a rising young star in 1935. That's when he found out that his mother was not dead, was in fact alive and had been in a mental asylum in Bristol, his hometown, uh, about 15 minutes away from uh, their house. Uh, And he had been under the impression that she was dead the entire time. He got her out of the asylum. His father died just about. His father told them that his mother was not dead and then promptly died. Uh, (sighs) He got his mother out of the asylum and set her up in in a comfortable little house in Bristol. World War II arrives, uh, he wasn't able to make his yearly trip over uh, because of the shipping lane problems with Nazi submarines, but he would call her every week and send her gifts and send her money. After the war, he began his yearly uh, uh, trip to Bristol to spend time with his mother, which was agonizing for him because she was still mentally compromised. She was not profoundly schizophrenic. She was uh, not exactly catatonic but somewhere in the range, she simply didn't respond to him. Uh, as far as she was concerned, he was still Archie Lee. He signed all his letters to her Archie, which was fine. I don't think that was a problem for him. But he would send her gifts and send her money and send her things, and she would kind of not even open them. For instance, <sighs> I talked to a friend of I talked to a friend of his who was with the mother three times I accompanied Carrie Grant to see his mother three times. This would be in the very late 50s, very early 60s. And uh, he had bought her a color television set when they were very new, about 1960, 61. And it was still in the box when he got there. So he and this friend set up the color television set, and she just sort of sat there, non-responsive. The ball didn't come back over the net, basically. No matter what he said and what he did, he would visit her for an hour or two, and that was all he could take, because he was desperately trying to make contact And there was no contact to be made. Mm. And he would come back to the car and slump in the back seat and say, I just don't know how much longer I can do this. And his friend uh, would say, Well, she was ill for a long time. She was in an institution for a long time. It takes time to get over this kind of thing. And he said, I don't have any more time. Because she was already well into her 80s at this point. And he was in his 60s at this point. So, and ultimately, of course, she died. And it was just, it was this, it was this uh, unsourced, unsourced musical note that he could never access, you know, that he desperately needed in his life. And so because his experience of life as a child was so minimal and there was no love when he, before she was institutionalized, she wouldn't let him out of her sight. She hovered over every waking minute of his day uh, because she had lost a child earlier. (laughs) Her first child had died at the age of one. So, uh, because infant mortality was much higher, you know, around uh, 1905 than it is now. Uh, And she hovered over him ceaselessly, and, and, and then she disappeared, and then he could never really make contact with her as an adult. So his experience of love was, the price was A, extremely high, and wearing, and exhausting, and withdrawal was agonizing. So he kind of reiterated this pattern in his own life. Is when he would set out to seduce somebody, uh, they were going to be seduced. I mean, he would flip on Cary Grant, you know, Sure. <laughs> and no one could res- No woman could resist that. Uh, but then when he got them, he would start to withdraw, then, then advance, withdraw, then advance. And Diane Cannon, one of his wives, said it was like a radio. It was t- the station would come in and then it would fuzz out. Would come in and fuzz out. You couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't really get it all the way. You couldn't get the signal all the way because he was scared. As soon as he got something, he was worried that it would blow up in his face. So he began to plan his retreat. That's a very long answer a short question.
0: No, fa- just fascinating. Well, how old was he when he came to America and he had his sights set? Was it originally America, in the, yeah, in the vaudeville America era? In when 19- was this?
1: He came to America in 1920. Uh, on the same boat, on the Olympia, on the same boat where Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford were returning from their honeymoon. And he always said one of the high points of his life was basically having a selfie taken with Douglas Fairbanks. He was a 16-year-old kid. He was in an acrobatic troupe. He he got kicked out of school at the age of 14, which was his intent, because he wanted out of school and he wanted out of Bristol and he meant to move on, and he was he was basically a lone wolf, even at an early age, because he had to be there was no other option so uh he was on the boat uh, and uh, saw Fairbanks, and of course, he idolized Fairbanks as all young men did in that era, and he got a picture taken with fairbanks, and I was thrilled to reproduce the picture in the book yeah. uh, that's the picture I'm proudest of qualityly trou though. Um, and he's, he's obviously uh, just thrilled to be in the same plane as Fairbanks, who's uh, acknowledging, you know, this kid who he had no idea was going to grow up to be one of the huge stars of a different generation, and it would become one of his son's closest friends, Doug Fairbanks Jr. Mm-hmm.
0: What was his What was his breakthrough in, in films? What, what was Was there one film in particular that really caught the audiences and critics' attention?
1: Well, no, no, there was a film that the industry's attention. it was called Sylvia Scarlet, and, and it was a bomb with the audience. Hmm. The audience didn't like it. It lost money. But people in the industry saw his performance, and suddenly the light went on. Because for the first time, he was playing someone that had something to do with his own experience of life. He's playing a cockney named Jimmy Monkley. Uh, he thinks the world is made up of uh, uh, a lot of pigs, uh, and he's out for number one. And at the same time, he's extremely charming and has this kind of blithe uh, uh, side to his character. The, and it, it, it's kind of a rough sketch of, of uh, the duality of Archie Leach and, and Cary Grant. And he's absolutely buoyant, and he makes the film work as well as it does, which is not that well, but without him, there's nothing at all. And, and it caught the industry's <laughs> attention, and they, began, and they began courting him for pictures that needed a kind of high energy, charming comic performance with maybe the end of the dark side.
0: Mm. What are in, in to your in your estimation, Scott? What are his greatest performances, and can you give us maybe a few of his most underrated performances, films that maybe we're not quite as familiar with that you would recommend?
1: Sure. Uh, I, 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 most people prefer they have a like North by Northwest a degree. I like North by Northwest, but it's not my favorite. <laughs> I like Notorious, the film he made for Hitchcock, uh, as, a, as a as a as a piece of acting, uh, as a star turn. I like Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief with <laughs> Grace Kelly. Yeah, uh, where he's absolutely Cary Grant. I mean, he's he's the perf- Cary Grant raised to the nth degree. It's just perfectly written and perfectly photographed, and he gives a perfect performance for the material, and he carries the material splendidly. Uh, In comedy, His Girl Friday, uh, Bringing a Baby, uh, the two pictures for Howard Hawks. Uh, He loathed arsenic and old lace. He thought he was way over the top, and he blamed Frank Capra, uh, who pushed him and pushed him and pushed him, uh, even though he felt uncomfortable. And maybe the last half hour does get a little exhausting, you know, because the thing is key to such a high pitch of farce. But it is an extraordinary performance in terms of style and technique, where he has to uh, unleash... Uh, his full skill set and, and incredibly energetic double and triple and quadruple takes and, and winnies and, and all sorts of uh, looks at the camera like Oliver Hardy. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a compendium of, of comic technique that's really extraordinary when you see it. And he, he basically knocks the walls down but it's still an incredible performance although he didn't like it. Uh, for un, undiscovered uh, performances I would look at None But the Lonely Heart which he said was the only time he ever actually played himself, Archie Leach. Uh, he's a, he plays a cockney who can't make contact with his mother, played by Ethel Barrymore. Mm. Uh, they're simply on two different wavelengths, and she's dying of cancer. Uh, the world, the war is coming. He can't make a, uh, he can't make a living. Uh, his only companion is a dog, uh, 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 a pit bull dog. And he doesn't ask too much of the dog, and the dog doesn't ask too much of him. So they sort of become their companions, but they're not buddies. If so you get my meaning,
0: yeah. Uh-huh. And
1: that's a picture. It, it captures all of this the wariness and the uh, un- insecurity and the indignity, indignance that actually embodied a lot of who Archie Leach was. And he's, it lost a little money. It was written and directed by Clifford Odets, who was like, Grant's closest friend in Hollywood. A man he dearly loved. Uh, and it, he, I think, he wanted. He wanted it to be successful, so he could investigate that aspect of his life further on screen. It lost a little money. It was kind of a flop to steam. It was not a flop. It was not a huge flop. It just lost about fifty thousand dollars or something. But the audience didn't know what the hell to help make of it. It was just not what they expected. <laughs> and the critics didn't know what to make of it because it was not what they expected. Because his character was like, his screen character is already set by nineteen forty four. Right. Yeah. And this is like a one off. So he said, he, because nobody seemed interested, he, he really quietly put it away and went back to being Cary Grant
0: <laughs>
1: because, because success was important to him, because money was important to him, because of his, his background. Because of the, the the meanness of his upbringing,
0: right, right, right. This has been talked about and discussed at length, and and you you do a lot of research in your book as well about his uh, bisexuality and uh, and first off, why do we care so much about people's personal lives? And, and uh, is it if, in this day and age in twenty twenty like who that? hell cares but i guess people do and and you write about him uh very sympathetically and gosh it it's really no surprise that that, that he was involved besides being married 5 times was bisexual correct
1: well i don't put i don't put a a label on him because i don't think he put a label on himself yeah. frankly yeah, yeah. Uh, as he explained to a friend uh it, it would be like playing just one part for all your life which is ironic because Basically, he played more or less just one part all his life, <laughs> with, a, with a few with with a, with a few with a few uh, uh, trips elsewhere, uh, which actually could describe his sexual life as well. I mean, there were a lot of women. There, I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, he had uh, more than his share, uh, and there were a few relationships that uh, indicate that he, he tried the other side of the fence as well. But as I say in the book, depending on which team you're rooting for. Uh, you could place Cary Grant in, in, as gay, as straight, or as bi. But you have to remember, and this is crucial, in, in about, about his character. Neither Archie Leach nor Cary Grant ever played for any team but their own.
0: Hmm. <laughs> well,
1: well, I don't actually know that. I don't actually know that he considered himself bi or gay or straight. I, I, I think he considered himself predominantly straight in his own mind. Uh, but he, but he, uh, uh, he made his own rules. He made his own rules as a man. He made his own rules as an actor. He made his own rules as a producer. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we still think about Cary Grant and wonder about Cary Grant because it's like Hemingway's thing about the, you know the, the iceberg. There's only ten percent of it above the water, and Grant indicates that there's a lot more going on underneath that gorgeous surface than he ever let us see, which is why he's interesting, which yeah. is why I wrote the book.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating about uh, all the his experiences with LSD, and I think this still is a real, real surprise to, to many people. Cary Grant took LSD? He sure did. He took it a lot. From, oh, from- Cary Grant took a lot of LSD. Cary Grant became Captain Trips. Wow. He <laughs> How did this start? Why did, why did he take because it? And I, want, well, Tell us about this. Because he was
1: desperate. Because he was desperate. Because nothing else was working. Because he, he had tried psychotherapy, uh, and it didn't work for him. It took too long. It was arduous. He didn't understand the process, and it felt uncomfortable to him. He was trying to figure out a way to integrate Archie with Karen. which was his core problem. And he couldn't. Because when, when you're young and you're poor, And you you don't have any leverage. You imagine that if you get to be successful and rich and famous and have all the leverage in the world, that it solves your problems. And as many people find out, they get to that point, and it doesn't solve your problems. In some senses, it exacerbates them because you expect your problems to be solved, and they're not. So you're more frustrated than you were before. (laughs) Uh, So his core problem was trying to integrate the person he was with the person he played. So he he started taking LSD, which was legal at this point. Uh, in the late 50s, 1958 or so, and found that it really made a difference. Uh, It made him feel uh, more in sync with the universe in a sort of way. It gave him insights that he never would have had. Because you have to remember, he dropped out of school when he was 14. He was extremely intelligent. His grades were good when he showed up. He just didn't show up very often because he wasn't interested. So... He had native intelligence, but he was uneducated, and he had a kind of random magpie way of accumulating information, basically a lot of old wives' tales. So he was looking for some organizing principle to his life, and LSD helped him find the principle that could meld Archie with Kerry. Uh, and he basically became proselytized for it to anybody that would ask, and even to some people that wouldn't ask. (laughs) 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 And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, it didn't bother him that people raised their eyebrows and thought, LSD, Cary Grant, what? And even after it was outlawed, you know, uh, uh, he, he, he he said it made a huge difference for the, uh, uh, for positive difference in my life. And he never really backed off of it. Uh, now people that knew him, and worked with him didn't see a huge difference in Cary Grant before acid and Cary Grant after acid. But for him, in his mind, it made him feel much more comfortable with the world. Uh, And it began the process that really only sped up and was completed when he quit show business in 1966 and just walked away because he had all the money he could ever spend. Uh, He had the daughter that he always wanted. He always lusted for children. Uh, And he finally had a child. Uh And he didn't need it anymore. emotionally. He didn't need the positive reinforcement. He didn't need the adulation anymore. What he wanted was to be comfortable in his own skin. That's all he ever really wanted. And because of he felt LSD, because of having a child, because of finally having financial security, sufficient financial security in his mind. He, of course, he had financial security for about 20 years at that point. <laughs> but still... <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, he, he walked away, and at that point, he relaxed and became very close to the Cary Grant that he inhabited on the screen, because he could he didn't have to worry anymore about being exposed as an imposter as Archie Leach.
0: Final question, two two parter, Scott. Who was his favorite leading lady to work with, and did he have a favorite director who he worked with over his incredible career?
1: Uh, Grace Kelly, mm. followed closely by Ingrid Bergman. <sighs> Uh, and uh, probably Hitchcock, probably Hitchcock. He liked Hitchcock because they understood each other on some primal level. Uh, He understood that Hitchcock, underneath that benign exterior, was a tough customer, who could be rather malicious if, if you crossed him. And Hitchcock understood that Grant was not exactly what he played, and he understood the anxieties, and he put up with the anxieties without blinking, because Grant, to him, was what John Wayne was to John Ford, the ideal leading man for the kind of pictures he made. Uh, so it was worth it to him to put up with his usual uh, He would mishigas. Grant would sign to do a film, and then he'd have second doubts, second thoughts, and then he'd panic because he thought the script that he'd agreed to do was suddenly junk. He did that with North by Northwest. He did that with every every Hitchcock film he made. Oh. Uh, but, but besides Hitchcock, besides Hitchcock, you like Leo McCary, uh
0: and Howard Hawks. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for June 2021. Our interview was with Scott Iman about his book, Carrie Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.